Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Karima Tolwar Kapoor. And I'm Herman Lindy. Harman, we are so excited to have you on the show this week. Uh, listeners, for those who don't know, Harman is uh, our research intern, uh, responsible for a lot of the content you hear. So it's great for uh, it's great to have you on the pod. We've got an exciting show for you this week. Uh, it has been a very eventful week in Ontario politics. We'll be talking about the Gong Show that was last week's rollout of the new code restrictions in Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel. We'll be talking about the state of policy affecting the LGBT community in Ontario, and we'll be talking about the federal Ontario investment in electric vehicle production in Oakville. Uh, but stick around because later on the pod, QP economist and broadband fellow Angela McEwen joining to talk uh, to Alvin about basic income and specifically go into what the progressive critique of basic income is. This is a discussion I'm really excited about um, because we've had a lot of basic income stands on the show. We feature uh, basic income stands in our uh, co-hosts, uh, but there are dangers and considerations, especially if you're interested in the concept of basic income, even if you are a BI stand. So I think you know, important um, side note, if I use stands, do we think our podcast will be more resonating with Zoomers? I feel like that's like a, <laughs> it's a term I'm borrowing from the Zoomers. Um, I think most Zoomers would take offense to being called Zoomers. Uh, then <laughs> maybe I've alienated more if you're listening to this in Gen Z. Yes, know that I am an old, but let's dive in. So of course, uh, hard to escape the biggest news story of the week, which was the new COVID ro- restrictions that rolled out on Friday. I'll just walk us through a couple of the high-level details. So Ontario implemented bans on indoor dining, casinos, cinemas, and more in Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel, further reducing gathering limits to a maximum of 10 people indoors. They announced $300 million in support from the federal government to offset some of the costs to businesses that'll be affected by the shutdown, uh, which include rent, uh, property tax rebates, hydro rebates, and natural gas. This uh, announcement was, of course, in the context of having resisted uh, public calls the prior week to close indoor dining and restrictions from the City of Toronto and the Ontario Hospital Association. And over the course of the week, the Premier seemed highly resistant to measures that would disrupt small business, uh, particularly restaurant establishments, uh, saying on Tuesday that he wants to thank Ontario restaurants for the sacrifices that they've made, that we never want to take anyone's livelihood away. We know you've poured your hearts into these businesses. Thank you to all the restaurants who are following protocols. We will not make any decisions without evidence. So sending a strong signal that this is not something that he wanted to do. But of course, as case counts rose from around the 500 mark to over 900 on Friday, the province announced the shutdown in these uh, in the these sort of hotspot regions. Just want to get into it a little bit. Obviously, this was a struggle that we saw the government work through in real time over the course of the week. What do we think? The holdup was. Yeah, I think, you know, if I could put myself in the government's shoes, I recognize that it's not that they're not uh, listening to the science. I don't want to suggest that. But I do think that their prioritization of of small businesses actually undermines their vitality over the longer term. And that in itself perplexes me because if if it's not a global pandemic that has taught us that we cannot separate these two issues, uh, the health of and well-being of our population and our economic strength, I don't know what will. And so and I just say, lastly, you know, that this is a big shift in just comms. Just a couple of weeks ago, the, the province kept saying, you know, we're, we're being really surgical about how we think about future shutdowns. And as we've said on this pod before, that does not work with 
a virus like COVID-19. And so it's not that they don't know these things. And, you know, through the, through the week, uh, Dr. Williams kind of said, you know, it takes time for cabinet to make decisions. And, you know, the policymaking process is just so, um, though opaque that people it takes, but even in a moment of crisis, that process uh, could not be, could not have gone uh, even faster to me is, is bewildering. This, this last week reminds me a lot about kind of like the early days of COVID. If you, you know, if you go back to March, uh, before the shutdowns, before the NBA closed down and all of that, the, the rhetoric and the columns coming out of the premier um, seems very similar because he was telling us to go off, you know, have our March break, right? Have fun, go away, travel. And then, you know, at the end of that week, it's all of a sudden complete change of tone. And that's what this leading up to Thanksgiving has felt a lot, you know, very um, unguided. They don't really, it seems like there isn't a clear plan of what kind of messaging they want to give us and to tell us, you know, as, 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 as a province, you know, these are the measures you need to take because beginning of the week on Monday, they're telling us, oh yeah, it's totally fine to have a big Thanksgiving with your, your family, right? So long as it's, um, you know, under 10 people, you know, then two days later, they're saying, actually, don't do that. Only your family bubbles are the problem. And it's like, but you've been telling us the last six months that bubbles are a good thing. So there's just isn't a lot of clear messaging. And like that confuses me because by this point, we should really have the messaging down. Yeah. I don't understand why the government doesn't. Yeah. And Thanksgiving, which is one of the largest gathering holidays of the year, has been known the entire time. Like, you know, the, a lead up to it, I think, is um, the fact that it wasn't more thought through surprises me. To your point about how the decision making process, Grima, it was really interesting to me to see how emotional the premier was at his press conference on uh, Friday about needing to shut down restaurants. Like he clearly has the short-term interests of restaurants and weighing on him and you know for for better or wrongly i don't i don't doubt that in him but when you actually look at how important shutting down restaurants is in the city of toronto which asked a week ago to shut down restaurants 44 percent of infections were linked to restaurants and bars the dynamic under that and what i've sort of gathered the the province's response to eileen Davila's original request was we need to see more data which as the sort of people examining that fight looked into, found that 44% of infections did not emanate from restaurants evenly across the city. Uh, there were a number of hotspot restaurants that generated massive amounts. Young uh, L's Furniture Warehouse on Young Street was mm-hmm. responsible for 1,700 exposures just by itself. Uh, so on some level, I get how in like the restaurant owner community that creates a, hey, why punish me for the bad actors dynamic and obviously that voice has some weight around the cabinet table but yeah to your point i am extremely disappointed that we don't understand yet at this point beating the virus equals economic well-being it is not a it is not a it is not a trade-off it is a it is a both and and the province's public line on this back to the city was that we need good data we need better data but when you have single establishments creating 1700 exposures it shuts down contract tracing making it harder to generate that data so and the province knows that and so i found the politics probably were too incomprehensible to, for 
to like generate much public awareness, but I found the province's effort to steer the conversation and sort of cast doubt on the city of Toronto, really bad faith. Um, and if I were in the city of Toronto, I would be extremely frustrated. And I think good on the city of Toronto for not making a political fight for keeping it at the level, even when the province was saying, was trying to sort of pitch it as one. And you had, you know, the typical conservative columnist in the Toronto Sun casting doubt on Eileen DeVilla's character and use of data and her attempt to paint her as a, a fear monger. And so I think one thing I will always remember from this week was a real attempt to use politics to delay a decision or something like that here, um, which I found kind of frustrating. Yeah. And I think, sorry, just on that, like the, the deliberate undermining of public officials and different orders of government, again, is just, is bad fiscal policy over the long run. Like if, like there are ways that the province can help the restaurant industry and small businesses, whether it's, you know, really it's the cost of supporting them with the cost of staying afloat while they don't have revenues coming in. Is that a short-term fiscal hit? Yes, it is. Um, Helping to support with rent or helping to support with utilities, like those are really important Uh, fiscal policy decisions that the province can make without and still support small businesses without saying that it's either or. Because over the long run, if as this economic recovery becomes more and more prolonged, these small businesses are not going to be able to stay afloat. And of course, we know that for municipalities, tax revenue from these businesses is absolutely critical to helping to provide the services that the city of Toronto or city of Ottawa provide. And at that point, just like we've seen uh, so far, the calls from municipalities for greater support from provinces and the federal government are only going to become stronger. And it does, it absolutely does not have to be this way. It's just, first of all, something that, you know, we've got positivity rates that are hovering province-wide around 1.2%, but in certain neighborhoods are at 10% in the city of Toronto. That is absolutely ridiculous. And there's just absolutely no support for the people there, the communities there, or the businesses there. Instead, where there is a propagation of of this idea that the fight is between business and public health and that is just not that's just an illusion and is not actually real yeah to your on the on the metrics it really seemed like rather than leading and saying here's where we need to go and this has been i think my complaint that we've come back to on the this government's handling of covid it seemed like they let the 900 case count make the decision for them. They were waiting for a big, splashy number that would scare people. And I don't know who those people are. Like, the, if they're more worried about the political support in the public, if they're worried about the cabinet table. But, you know, the writing was on the wall. Most people saw this coming at least a week ago, uh, if not more. Um, it, You know, they're sort of like, we really don't want to do it. And then finally with the 900 case count reluctantly doing it like strikes me as frustrating because we didn't know that that was their threshold before and i'm not sure that it it was like i'm not sure it was a plan the government even told us that the 900 cases were coming two weeks in advance they came out and said our model models are predicting a thousand cases per day by mid-october well mid-october is around thanksgiving time (laughs) 
we got 937 cases around mid October. So it's like, why did you not take these measures? You know, at the end of September, would you knew this was inevitable? They waited yeah. until the absolute last minute when these, it was already kind of too late and these measures are not enough to contain the spread because it's already out there so it's like yeah. who, i i don't understand you know what was the point of like this dual announcement because you prepare people for these insane case count daily case count numbers and then by the time it comes you know it may not land as much for people that are really tuned in because they're going to get both headlines we're going to see both headlines of expecting 1,000 cases by mid-october and then seeing 1,000 cases by mid-october they've already prepared themselves for that so who's it for i i find talking about COVID, it's like hard not to spiral about it just because it's like it's so frustrating um so maybe i'll move us on to a uncharacteristically non-covid story on thursday last week the ontario and federal government uh, co-announced a 525 million dollar investment into ford canada's oakville assembly complex to retool it to electric vehicle production uh prime ministers ford and trudeau were in attendance and so grim i'm wondering if you can take us through the announcement a little bit what it means and uh why we think it attracted the political attention that it did yeah sure thanks chris it was really nice to think about and hear about something that's not um, COVID related. Uh, so last week, the federal and provincial governments committed to investing $525 million for the mass production of electric vehicles and batteries at Ford's Oakville plant, an investment to help the country's automotive industry stay competitive and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Can't have a press release about COVID. We just can't get away from it. Each government will chip in $295 million for this initiative. The funding is part of a three-year agreement worth about $1.8 billion that was announced last month between Ford and Unifor, the union that represents Canada's auto industry workers. The investment will also secure about 5,000 jobs throughout the automotive industry, The Oakville plant employs uh, about 3,400 workers, and retooling the plant to produce electric vehicles will save about 3,000 of these jobs. Um, As an important note, a $5,000 federal rebate was introduced last spring to lower the cost of zero-emission battery-powered vehicles. Uh, Of course, the sales of electric vehicles have dropped dramatically in Ontario, um, throughout 2019, and especially during the first half of 2019, after the, the province cancelled a rebate for their purchase under the previous Liberal government, the Ontario had offered up to $14,000 back for buyers who purchased electric vehicles, but the current government eliminated the rebate after um, after being elected, saying that the money was going to people who already could afford expensive cars. So that is the lay of the land on electric vehicle production in Ontario. I find these moments so interesting because there is something about an automotive announcement that like attracts the highest level of political attention. I think any kind of uh, manufacturing. And so I'm curious, you know, just to... Um, maybe for our perspective as to, you know, why, you know, what was the importance of this? Why why it attracted the kind of attention that it did? And is this actually a truly important step in either our goals in fighting climate change or perhaps, you know, 
rebuilding Ontario's economy after COVID? Like, is this is this is this a meaningful step? Yeah, I, I think that the environmental policy issues aside, which are of course like paramount in this debate, um, I think the focus on good, secure jobs is something that people right now in this moment are really, really, really nervous about what the future of the labor market looks like, what their the future of their livelihoods looks like. And so I think um, electric vehicle production is is interesting because it it juxtaposes the our great past in manufacturing while also being forward looking because it is about about zero emissions and and environmental protect, protection. So I, I find that fascinating from a labor perspective and just a overall policy perspective. Yeah, it is a very interesting symbol of a lot of things that are of mutual benefit to both governments. Manufacturing, if you want to uh, occupy occupies this big place in the public imagination. It was, you, uh, to your point, harkens back to this great past. Um, it has been shrinking and parties of all stripes uh, have been figure, trying to figure out how to reverse course. Manufacturing is about 11% of Ontario's GDP and one of our, our largest single sectors. So it is it is important, uh, though it is not like a majority share by any stretch. Um, and so, yes, it's sort of a break in the dam of that trend. It you know, can move us forward on climate change. And also, I would say for like the, the regional politics of this, they're hugely important ridings, those Oakville, usually competitive uh, between the conservatives and the liberals. And uh, it was just in the and summer the that, and the NDP, um, <laughs> you know, the Ford company, Ford Motor Company, Premier Doug Ford had a, a signal that they were going to scrap the SUV production taking place at the plant, which immediately sent ripples of anxiety throughout, you know, the community uh, and all the the businesses that rely on that. And so sort of there's a great we saved the plant narrative here, too, which I think is also a simple thing people can wrap their heads around. So I think a good a good job on both governments part uh, getting this thing done at this time. I would be loath to say, though, uh, that, you know, this is any I've seen some folks musing about this being maybe a, a turning uh, point in the government's approach or thinking about climate change. And uh, I want to just <laughs> posit some things there uh, just to remind us of who the Ford government is. They are still fighting the carbon tax in court that we were supposed to get a decision. That decision was delayed. So the Ford government is still trying to fight the carbon tax. Uh, it is estimated that canceling cap and trade will increase emissions by 25 to 35%. Ottawa just improved, uh, approved uh, a Ford government created Ontario industrial emissions pricing system that was designed specifically to meet the bare minimum standards uh, and will uh uh, increase emissions over what would be the case if the industrial emission standard were just from the federal government were just adopted in Ontario. So this is still a government that is trying to um, do as much to restrict pro climate change policy as they possibly can. And so I'm I'm happy about this. I like it's you know a nice little break in the dam, but I you know don't want to give them too much credit. Yeah, I think it has much less to do with climate than, and more just about the jobs aspect and then it being in competitive writings, like you said, Chris. Um, Unifor is also currently negotiating with FCA, so Chrysler Fiat uh, America, and they have a plant in Brampton and Windsor. Um, the way these union deals typically work in the automotive industry is that they do one, and then they use that leverage from that deal 
to, to get a similar deal from the other companies, so from Chrysler and GM. Ford was the first one in this round, and they're currently doing negotiations with FCA. So they may be able, they may be trying to uh, get similar electric vehicle production in those plants and get and get those similar same investments. So we're likely to hear another announcement in the coming month or so uh, about that. And like you know, Brampton uh, and Windsor are fairly competitive ridings between the NDP liberals and conservatives these days. So I think it's all about. The government is super gung ho about it because it allows them to pick up those, you know, tightly contested seats that they really want to win. The liberals want to win them back. The NDP wants to keep the ones that they have and win back ones in Windsor, uh, and the conservatives want a clean sweep of all of them. Right. So, yeah, everybody's super interested in these regions having jobs, having good jobs, and you know, getting these new investments there. Yeah. Well, um, want to end today on a high note. Um, October 11th was National Coming Out Day, which uh, has been celebrated uh, since 1988 to celebrate the inherent activism represented by coming out to friends, family, and colleagues and living openly as gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, two-spirit, or uh, any other othered sexual orientations. Uh, So to mark the occasion, uh, we wanted uh, Harmon uh, to give us a little bit of an overview of how we're doing in 2020 on policy impacting the uh, LGBT community in Ontario. So Harmon, uh, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, so Ontario in particular does really well when it comes to LGBT policy um, in Canada and has been historically kind of a leader in, in, in the policy field. But I want to talk about something that's been in the news uh, lately in the last couple of weeks, which is the pending ban on conversion therapy by the federal government. So Ontario was the first province to ban conversion therapy back in 2015 uh, for youth, so those under 18. And since then, since 2015, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and PEI have all followed suit with their own conversion therapy bans for for youth. Um, Nova Scotia's ban, however, does allow for mature minors, so those are 16, 17, and 18, to uh, go to conversion therapy. These provincial bans are a significant step in the right direction in protecting LGBTQ plus Canadians from harm. Um, But, you know, it is a patchwork that exists. So earlier this year, the federal government finally introduced legislation that would amend the criminal code to prevent forcing any person into conversion therapy against their will from sending a child abroad with the intent of undergoing conversion therapy, advertising, receiving financial or material benefit from conversion therapy. So this is a pretty um, strong ban. It, It stops you from effectively running a conversion therapy uh, center or camp in, mm-hmm. in Canada. It makes it very, very difficult. Um, and this is something that, you know, the LGBT community has been fighting for for a very long time in Canada. And it's amazing to oh. see that we're finally, you know, moving in the direction of protecting, um, you know, vulnerable individuals. Um, the bill uh, died in Parliament, unfortunately, uh, when it was prorogued, but it was reintroduced by the Justice Minister, October 1st, the Bloc and the NDP both support it. Uh, the, the Conservatives had a predictable and lackluster response. Uh, Aaron O'Toole called it divisive and is allowing his caucus to have a free vote on the bill. Now, that doesn't mean it's in danger of failing with the, the Bloc and NDP both supporting it, but it is frustrating to see you know, the, the federal Conservatives avoid taking a strong stance Whenever it comes to LGBT issues, you know they like to some, like say they support them and support the community, 
but you know whenever push comes to shove it's it's like uh, you know uh, hands up in the air you know we don't want to really get involved kind of thing yeah uh yeah i mean i saw aaron o'toole get all kinds of plaudits when he uh was first elected leader for um you know saying that he supports just like literally saying that he supports the rights of lgbt uh canadians and now but we, yeah what when he's asked about this policy he calls it divisive and so i think it's important as to yeah to remember with this as with any sort of all of the social justice movements that we've seen over the last decade you know well we've come a long way there's still a long way to go um yeah uh, and you know i, I that, that's you know when i sort of listen to you like talk about this history and the rollout of this policy i'm it's a thing that i was just you know reflecting on yeah and um you know i think it's really easy for a lot of canadians to see you know sexual orientation protection in the charter you know, being in 95 and then marriage in 05 and think, you know, this is, you know, the, the maximum progress that we need to make. This is, you know, we've achieved the main goals for the LGBT community, but like, you know, discrimination didn't end in 2005. You know, I, I think that's pretty clear. There's still systemic abuse and discrimination among the community. And it takes a long time to make the, the, pro, the full progress that we need to have, you know, equal access to healthcare, equal access to, you know, Discrim- uh, protection from discrimination and harm um, f- for you know these uh, minority communities, and I think you know the columns in the National Post and the Toronto Sun um, are very much of the opinion of you know we've done enough when that's just simply not true. Still, other um, goals that the community has to achieve, such as a blood uh, lifting the blood ban, finally um, that's been yeah. in place for way too long. <laughs> Exactly. Still prohibited Still, from donating blood. Yeah. Uh, the, the government says, you know, they're working on it, that changes are coming very soon, but they said that, you know, back in January. So, yeah. who knows? Yeah, we'll... we'll, we'll... That's definitely one for sure that like I, I still like I forget about it from from time to time. Whenever I'm reminded, I'm like, wait, still? That's still? Yeah, um, a lifetime ban so. up until 2013. So yeah, maybe a, a good a good day to reflect uh, that still needs to happen and the activism that is ongoing uh, on, on these issues uh, as well as how far we've come. Cool. Before we go to our interview with Angela McEwen on Basic Income, I wanted to make a request of you, the listener. First, follow us on social media. We are at, at Ontario Loud on Twitter, Ontario Loud Podcast, all one word on Instagram and Facebook at Ontario Loud. Second, if you are listening on a store like Apple Podcast that lets you leave a review or a rating, leave that review and rating. It is a huge way uh, that helps the podcast get into uh, new categories. It gets us more listeners, um, just the way the algorithms work. Uh, it really, really, really helps. So if you like what you're hearing, leave a review. Third, if you like the pod, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, we have tiers ranging from 3 to 5 to 10 to $15 a month. It takes a lot to do this pod each week and your support really 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 helps uh, uh, both offset our costs and put the pod in front of new people uh, for those of you that already do support thank you thank you thank you you are amazing um, and that's enough of me on to our interview with Angela McEwen next on the pod we have Angela McEwen Angela is a labor climate and international trade specialist with a comprehensive background in social and economic justice and policy research. She's currently the senior economist at CUPE, that's the Canadian Union of Public Employees. She's a policy fellow at the Broadbent Institute, and she was a researcher, a research associate at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and senior economist at the Canadian Labor Congress. Angela, welcome to the pod. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So how's it going with you right now? How are you surviving the pandemic? As well as can be expected. Yeah, uh, so I can work from home and it actually works really well to, to collaborate with my coworkers on Zoom. So it's mostly the same. Um, just missing sort of that personal touch where you see people more often. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on. And uh, because of the pandemic, the topic of a universal basic income or a guaranteed livable income has been coming up a lot lately. So we wanted you to come on the show to talk about some of the concerns or potential pitfalls of UBI or GBI that have been the talk of Canadian politics recently, uh, especially with the CERB and other programs that are guaranteeing uh, income for many Canadians. So we've heard a lot of criticisms from the right or conservatives who believe that it would cost too much or would make people lazy or that, you know, there are all the other bullshit reasons they come up with not supporting people, right? But I think what our listeners need to hear are that there are also legitimate concerns um, that are coming from policy experts who warn that UBI is not the panacea or silver bullet solution that many people think it is. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of the concerns you have um, with how Canada would implement a basic income. Sure. So I am broadly sympathetic to the idea of a, of a basic income. I've done research on the uh, social determinants of health, right? And income is definitely one of those. So I see there being a benefit to making sure people have enough money to meet their needs. But where I get concerned is, is like the details of the implementation. Are we going to get the kind of basic income that would actually accomplish that? And are we going to keep the other programs that we still also need. Because what you hear when people talk about implementing a basic income, they're like, oh, well, we can just get rid of all social assistance and get rid of um, employment insurance and then just hand out money. And that obviously wouldn't fix <laughs> everything um, because we still need that. So we have social insurance programs uh, that are different from, from social assistance programs and they perform different functions. And um, so for social insurance, it's mostly connected to work, right? Have you, for some reason, um, have you been injured? So we have workers compensation um, where you get, you know, medical help and then help getting back into work. Uh, for employment insurance, is there some kind of cyclical downturn in your industry or do you need help retraining for another job? And so the point of employment insurance is actually to uh, help find better job matches for people so that so that's better for that individual but it's also better for our overall productivity in the economy right so we end up getting people matched to jobs that they have the best kind of training for and it's not so much about anti-poverty whereas social assistance or basic income is mostly about anti-poverty right it's mostly about um, making sure sure that people have enough money to meet their basic needs and so we have that in Canada for children mostly and for seniors. We have the um, old age security, which is pretty close to a universal immigrant. So that's one form of a basic income where everybody gets a check for, for a certain amount of money. Um, and an old age security, it's based on your how long you've lived in Canada for um, and your age. And you get 600 bucks a month. So that's tends to be the problem with the universal immigrant is that it's very low. It's a low amount of money because everybody gets it. Uh, so, so then there's another type of basic income, which is kind that Milton Friedman, the conservative economist, really likes, and that's called a negative income tax. 
And so we have um, the Guaranteed Income Supplement for Seniors, which is a like the negative income tax. Um, it's only calculated once a year, so it's really slow to adjust to any change in your income. So it's not a true negative income tax. A true negative income tax would respond and kind of smooth out um, your income on a more regular basis. But anyway, so that provides a floor. So we say, if you're a senior in Canada, you will get at least um, around $20,000 a year of income. And that's mostly when people talk about a guaranteed livable basic income, that's what they're talking about is setting some kind of a floor. It just, it gets more complicated when you're talking about working age adults. So we have certain programs that are meant to be anti-poverty or meant to help people get into the labor market a little bit more. Um, but there are lots of concerns around, uh, well, it, it's mostly concerns about, around people being lazy and not, not working um, is, is why we don't have more supports. Uh, because if you look at who's covered by, by social assistance, um, people in families are more likely to be covered and the coverage is more generous. People with disabilities, if you can prove that you have a disability, then there's, there's more generous coverage. Um, but if you can't prove that you have a disability and you're single and determined as being employable, then welfare rates across Canada or social assistance rates are really, really low. So it's hard to get it and it doesn't give you very much money. And so that's really the group of people that our social safety net right now is failing. So let's break that out a little bit more because you were talking about how you know, we confuse the sort of employment insurance system, the 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 serve that we had recently because of the pandemic, with sort of the basic needs that people might have that need to be supported either through a GIS or old age security or through um, um, social assistance, right? So, what do you think is the appropriate? Um, sort of employment insurance, social insurance type model. Like let's let's separate out the idea that you know every every problem can be fixed with a job, because um, I think a lot of people, especially people who work in this space, understand that that's not true. Um, but let's address that issue first, and then we'll come back to uh, sort of the piece about how do we solve poverty and give people that that basic amount of needs. So. Um... I'm a labor economist. I work for a union and uh, I, I definitely think that there's lots that we can do in, in terms of labor legislation. And actually the Ontario provincial government um, under Kathleen Wynne, when they went through that review uh, that they did and they implemented a bunch of measures uh, that Doug Ford undid, so paid sick leave, <laughs> right? Um, and making sure that uh, part-time or temporary staff are paid the same as full-time staff, or at least that that's prorated, that those types of measures actually help to combat uh, precarious employment, right? That makes sure that all jobs are good jobs. And so that's obviously that's something that we want to do because one of the other concerns, so the concern from the left about basic income for working age adults is that it just becomes a wage subsidy and it actually enables bad employers to take advantage of people. They know that somebody's going to be getting $300 a month or $600 a month from the basic income. And so they know they don't have to increase their wage. Um, and, and the way that you combat that is you have to make sure that the basic income is enough 
for a person to be able to leave that job, to be able to leave that terrible employer. And so then it becomes very expensive. <laughs> so if you're giving everybody, you know, $24,000 a year at the level of the CERB, um, yeah, that, that becomes quite an expensive program. And the reason we had the CERB at that level was because it was intended to keep people home. It was targeted at people who were working or could have been working um, and that we didn't want them having to go out and find another job and put themselves in danger. It was, it's better for everybody um, if you can afford to stay home right now. And so it was set at the level where it was meant to be a livable income. It still had that right. attachment test. So I, I think that's a great point. And I mean, Kathleen largely uh, lost for a number of reasons, but one of them was the the pushback for Bill 148 being uh, what it was and, and a number of people who uh, didn't like it. So I, I certainly sympathize and I agree with your point there that we have to increase that side of the system um, before we, we look at the other side as well. But at the same time, you know, I think we've seen that the CERB did require a larger amount because not just to keep people home, but also what people needed to survive. And it doesn't seem like social assistance is meeting that need right now. Uh, Ontario Works, ODSP, it's 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 obviously not as generous as the CERB was. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that that balance or that rate that uh, that people seem to need? Yeah, so how much you need to live is going to vary significantly based on, you know, where you are in the country. But one of the things that social assistance tries to do is um, provide some of the benefit of social assistance in services, right? So they, you have access to subsidized housing or subsidized childcare, And so they try to keep the costs down uh, for an individual or a family in that sense. Um, but it's, it's really problematic because the level that you get uh, a subsidy. So I, um, I was campaigning in the last election and I was knocking on doors and I met a woman who worked um, almost full time at minimum wage, made $24,000 a year, was a single mom. She made too much money to get a subsidy for dental care for her son. The dental care he needed would have cost, um, it was like $3,000 or something like that. But if she didn't get it done, she was at risk of having her child taken away by social services because it was neglect. Um, so you get the situation where, where these subsidized services that people need are just uh, too expensive to replace in the market once you're just kind of at that next level. So the a big problem, in my view, in social assistance is that if you're, if you're actually on social assistance, there's a lot of services that you can get kind of for free. But if your income level is just marginally above social assistance, then you don't have access to any of that. And it's too expensive to replace it on the market. So it becomes, uh, people talk about the welfare wall. It becomes really, um, so any income that you earn on social assistance is clawed back at 50%. Um, any uh, income that anyone in your family earns, so like kids can't get a part-time job to help, you know, um, if they want to buy their own clothes or help out with the family, they, they can't do that. So there's a lot of the rules in social assistance that actually make it more punitive. It's not just the amounts. The amounts are absolutely not enough, right? And so we try to make up for that by subsidizing other services. But then also the rules are awful. Like you can't move in with a friend and you can't you can't really work and get more money back, like if you can get part-time work, right? So there's all of these 
these barriers put in your way when you're on social assistance into getting off of social assistance. Um, yeah, for sure, Angela. That's that's a great point. Um, some of the other things I heard along those lines, especially around the complexity of the system, is why don't we just blow it all up? Blow it all up and not have any of those services, give people a check and wash their hands of it. And that's kind of the Milton Friedman model where it's, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort delivering a bunch of these services that, I mean, obviously we think people need, but, you know, it, it was cumbersome and it's, it's, it's a lot of work for the government to do. Why not just blow it up and give everybody a big check? Well, and I think I maybe partly addressed that is it's actually really expensive to replace those services on the market. I think that if we made some of these services universal, if you had universal pharmacare, if you had universal dental care, that that actually goes a long way to improving um, the the livelihood of, of working poor more broadly, right? So whether or not you can qualify for social assistance doesn't become as big a deal if you have affordable childcare, like or free national childcare, if you have, um, medicine, whether you, like, it doesn't cost any money if you have, because if you have diabetes, if one of your kids has diabetes and you have to get insulin, like, that's a huge amount of money out of your pocket. So there are illnesses that people have or needs for medicine that can get quite expensive. Um, and so, and dental care is absolutely one of those, right? So uh, it, you don't always need it, but if you need it, it's really expensive. And so you can't just give everybody more money and expect it to cover those needs, right? Some of these needs are erratic, um, but if you provide the need on an as needed basis, I'm saying need a lot, um, then, then that catches people. And so then your kind of income transfer that you need is much smaller and it's more consistent. So everybody needs food, everybody needs shelter, you need some money for clothes. So I, I do think it's worthwhile looking at so should we increase the GST credit um, through taxes? Should we change the working income tax so that there's the Canada worker benefit where if you earn a little bit of money, you get uh, more money through the tax system, a little bit of a supplement. So should we change that and increase the amount of money that you get through that so that we're kind of giving, um, directing a, a little bit more money to this group of people that, that we're not helping uh, right now? Um, and, and I, I think that security, like knowing that no matter what, you've got this $200 check a month coming. And so you can at least pay, you know, your student loans back with that money, or you can at least buy groceries once a month with that amount of money that that really helps um, people. So uh, before we wrap up, Angela, let's, let's talk about some real world examples here and see how we can, you know, give the... Uh, potential policy experts listening to the pod right now, an idea of what we should do or what we could do, right? So imagine you were advising the next premier who wanted to use uh, Kathleen's basic income pilot as the model to move forward with um, uh, after the next election. What would you suggest are some of the the takeaways from that? What What worked? What didn't work? What would you change if you had sort of wholesale control to uh, to edit the program? So the, the main thing that I didn't like about the basic income pilot was um, that people with disabilities didn't get to keep some of access to some of the services that they would have had through ODSP. 
because I really think that if we're going to have a successful basic income, you want to provide some fixed amount of money to people so that they have that security. They know that amount of money is coming in, but then you want to pair that with services um, like childcare, like um, medical equipment that they might need, or those very targeted programs. Because for people with disabilities in, in particular, some people with disabilities have very expensive needs and others don't. And so it's hard to tailor a one-size-fits-all program with cash. You really have to, to tailor it with providing like the wheelchair <laughs> um, or the or the whatever it is that that person needs, the medicine, the and so on forth. And so there are parts of um, social assistance, I think that mostly do work well. Um, if it were, say, properly staffed, if people had the time, if the workers had the time to address needs, and if they weren't having to enforce, like to police the boundaries, to try to keep people um, off the system. And so if it is more of a universal, we're giving everybody who needs something the thing that they need, uh, then it becomes maybe uh, less stigmatizing and, and harder, easier for people to um, meet their needs. So would you imagine a future system still separating out ODSP and a basic income as separate programs for different people with different needs? Like, Would you imagine that that would be the um, ideal way to ensure that the services that people with disabilities um, would continue to get the service and the funding that they needed? So I sort of imagine it as separating the cash transfer part from the services part. So everybody would get kind of a similar cash transfer, um, but people who had specific needs, um, there would there would also be an ODSP to deliver the services. Right. So the services that exist for you know people with autism, people with exactly. ODSP, um, they they would the employment services that are out there to help people exactly. find employment. Yeah. All those specific programs that are targeted to help people and, and to help them get out of their situation, which isn't just a cash, tran cash transfer, um, would continue to exist in addition to uh, a basic income that would uh, bring everybody up, right? Yeah. That's what we're talking about? That, that's what I'm talking about. Because there are, even for Ontario Works, there are um, training programs and education programs um, that are very useful for people. And I don't think we spend enough money on that part of the system. Um, and, and if you can make that part of the system, again, reduce the stigma, um, people aren't participating in that because they're afraid they'll get cut off. Uh, they're, they're participating in it because they see value in it um, and because um, they get the choice. Yeah, I, f I feel like giving, giving people like more independence and more autonomy over their lives if you, if you separate out the services from the cash transfer. So what do you think the policymakers and the politicians need to hear for not just um, a basic income to actually happen, but for the correct model to be implemented? What should we be taking to the I streets? I think the most important thing is that a basic income, the cash transfer, is not a silver bullet. You cannot have one program that meets all of your needs. You're going to create other programs and that it's incredibly difficult to design. So I wrote a paper on it and I... Just looking at what the definition of income is for different forms of income, or if you're looking at SERB, like how different programs that already exist 
treat different types of income and the interactions that can come up because of that. Is it taxable? Does it reduce your GST credit? Does it reduce your GIS? Does it affect your, your housing <laughs> subsidy? What does it mean for your RSP or what you can pull out of your TFSA? Or There's just all of these rules that exist. And then we have a whole subsection of the population that actually doesn't submit taxes. So if you're doing something through a tax system um, and the people you're trying to reach actually don't file taxes. So like 30% of people in social assistance in Ontario don't file taxes. So they're not going to get the benefit of the program. So you're literally designing something that it's, it makes no sense. Um, so you kind of have to fix some of those problems ahead of time and that will actually help you get towards the goal that you want. So I think what it is, is that you need to really think about fit for purpose. So what parts of the system, what a problem are we trying to solve? What parts of the system already address these problems well? And how could you supplement people's income in a way that works with those existing programs? Uh, what can we do? And to think about how that's going to affect um, kind of the broader social fabric. So you've seen with CERB a lot of people talking about how it's allowed people to stay home and be lazy. And if we have a basic income, that's only going to accelerate. And there's a reason that we don't give everybody money now. It's because we have ideas about who deserves money and who doesn't deserve money. So if you're trying to work, if you're a hard worker, yeah, we sh you need to get a little bit more money. We, we want to help you. But if you have a mental illness or you're addicted to drugs, well, no, you don't deserve any help. <laughs> and if you have an illness that I can't see, I think you're lazy and you don't deserve help, right? So if we still have those ideas about those people, we're not going to pay taxes to give those people um, money. And so we have to think about why don't we already support those systems and how can we uh, change that? So can we start addressing uh, drug addiction as a medical issue instead of criminalizing it? Can we start addressing poverty, um, not criminalizing it? Have we thought about how, um, how poverty is a function of historical inequities like uh, residential schools and um, other <laughs> discrimination that's, that happens in our world, right? That's like, a whole other pod topic. <laughs> whole, it's, but it's there, right? So how do, yeah, we're, we're not going to have a basic income that's transformative and have people willing to pay taxes for it uh, that can undo these things unless we start addressing why poverty and inequality is there in the first and understanding that and confronting that. So yeah, there's no one solution that fits anything, but I am very um, partial to universal services, <laughs> just because uh, the members of the union I work for provide some of those services. But I do think that's how you build the social solidarity and, and kind of start chipping away at that. On that note, I want to thank you, Angela, for coming on to the pod and uh, giving us your thoughts on this. I think there's a lot for us to digest and a lot for us to uh, think about as we uh, continue to advocate for these uh, policies here in Canada and in Ontario. Quick reminder, Angela McEwen is a senior economist at CUPE, a policy fellow at the Broadbent Institute. You can follow her on Twitter at A McEwen. Uh, she's definitely worth the follow over there. Thank you so much, Angela. Thanks, Alvin. That's all for today's episode. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, 
Get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is me, Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andre, Elvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and Alexi White. We are supported by our amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. As always, thanks for listening.